John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed entry 967.AC1940, certificate number 32844, the Port Chicago disaster. Have you ever driven into San Francisco from the north on Interstate 80? Not from Marin County, but from the other side of the bay. That's right. That's right. So we're not yeah. coming in across the Golden Gate Bridge. We're, right. You're coming in from Sacramento. Like, yeah, from the, yeah. My grandma used to live in Albany, or my great grandma used to live in Albany by Berkeley campus, and we would spend summers there sometimes. Uh, so yeah, I know the East Bay pretty well. So you went there as a kid. Do you remember going across the Mare Island Strait and seeing all the mothballed Navy ships there docked in the in the river basin? I don't know if I remember the ships. They're still there. A lot of them are, although when I first started going back and forth across that body of water, there was an incredible mothball fleet. Uh, and a mothball fleet is when the Navy sort of takes a ship out of of operation but kind of keeps it on hand. And they literally fill it with mothballs because moths like to eat. Oh, they love eating steel. ships. If you ever, if you've ever seen a ship that was riddled with moth holes. It's hilarious. You know, the, the, the moths fly out and the pockets have holes in them like a, like in a cartoon. Uh, and this area, it was always a place of fascination to me because you could look down and at the time see all kinds of old battleships and interesting Vietnam era boats that were still afloat and, and moored together, tied up with one another. Uh, but this area, it's called Suisun Bay, I think is how it's pronounced. Suisun. Uh, or Suisun, S-U-I-S-U-N. How would you pronounce it? I don't know. It's I mean, a... I suppose this is a thing we could, we could ask any one of our friends in San Francisco. In the future, everyone who has said this word is dead, so right. we can decide how it's pronounced. Suisun Bay, it's kind of a, it's an interlocking set of bays. There's the San Pablo Bay, which is the big one. Uh, there are a few rivers kind of all coming into this estuary. There's the Napa River from the north and uh, the Sacramento River, the San Joaquin River. They all sort of pour into this giant swampy estuary. Sassoon. Is it really? Apparently. The Sassoon. 
I got some Merriam-Webster geographical dictionary going on here. So huh. it's like Vidal Sassoon? I guess. It's, fi- it's filled with hair mousse instead of water. Uh, well, and hair mousse, again, keeps moths away. <laughs> moths just hate hair mousse. That's why you never see moths flying around Morrissey. Huh. Interesting. A lot of people don't know that. But this area has a long uh, and storied history as a naval base or a series of naval bases. And it's still a base today? Or are they just renting space? Uh, there's There are several sort of former bases. There's the Concord Naval Weapons Station. There are uh, there were refueling areas and munitions loading spots. And I just know you like to talk about decommissioned um, military bases. So oh. I thought I'd I thought I'd let you talk a bit. Do I ever? Uh, th- that should actually be a whole episode. We got to stop foreshadowing future episodes. The risk is it makes people think the current topic is less interesting than the thing we tell them we're not talking about. Right. Sorry you guys have to struggle through this show, but boy, we're going to get to decommissioned <laughs> naval bases one of these days. Uh, there's now uh, uh, some of, you know, they get they keep getting their names changed, right? The Concord Naval Weapons Station is now the Naval Weapons Station Seal Beach. Ooh. The Navy loves doing stuff like that, and, and uh, all the Air Force bases now are part of joint... Task Force XYZ. It's I like the idea that the Navy might have a base at Seal Beach where the there they have Navy SEALs that are actually SEALs. Oh. Like, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> right. They tie little little headlamps on them and send them off. And send them off to Pakistan. A lot of these places are super fund sites now because... Because uh, uh, we dumped stuff? Yeah. For the most of that period, a lot of gunk ended up in the water. Probably and... all the chip beef on toast, am I right? <laughs> Lol. Military humor. Beetle Bailey. Love it. But during World War II, this was a very crucial area in terms of naval logistics because we were fighting a war in the Pacific mm-hmm. and Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Was, and that would have been a lot of staging there. Yeah, Pearl Harbor was very important. I mean, this was why the Japanese attacked there. It was a very important naval base. It allowed us to project force across the whole of the Pacific. But with Pearl Harbor bombed and, and at a reduced capacity... Uh, San Francisco Bay became a major, major part of the naval effort in sending all this equipment, ships and and munitions and materiel to fight a war across the whole Pacific. I mean, Long Beach and and there are bases in San Diego, for instance, is also a huge Navy base. But unlike the East Coast, where there were Navy bases up and down uh, the American East Coast, there are just that many fewer harbors in the West. Yeah, and like Puget Sound Oregon also. is kind of harbor-free. I was going to ask, uh, this is a tangent, but what about our neck of the woods? Well, sure. Bremerton became a huge shipyard and remains to this day a major naval shipyard. Did uh, you know there's still a uh, Nazi officer POW buried in the, in the military cemetery here in Discovery Park in Seattle? No, I did not yes, know that. Yes, some guy that was building, uh, what, some kind of fortifications here in Seattle as part of his prison detail. And uh, apparently accounts differ as to whether he committed suicide by drinking, uh, you know, some kind of acetone or whether they were trying to make a still. They were trying to brew something out of acetone and they accidentally poisoned themselves. I prefer to think the latter. That's fun. Much better. It's a little reverse Hogan's Heroes down in uh, Magnolia. But there in the, uh, what was it? Susan? Susan? Susan Bay. Boy, this is, we're going to get letters. Uh, down in Sassoon Bay, this was a major loading depot for ammunition to be sent across the Pacific. And you have to think, all of the Marines and all of the Navy ships, I mean, uh, the, the fighting 
this battle that raged from Australia all the way to the Aleutian Islands, they all needed bullets and shells and mines and torpedoes and bombs. So stuff comes in on a train from all over America, funnels into Contra Costa County. That's right. It's all coming from everywhere and it's being loaded onto Liberty ships to ship across the Pacific. And this was a dangerous job and kind of a... a um, oh, is that right? I'm talking about the loading of munitions. Now, tell me why it would be dangerous. Like, well, don't these things uh, not blow up until you tell them to? Well, any handling of munitions is in, intrinsically dangerous because they are explosive. Any kind of impact or spark might? Well, it's a lot different than... Well, for instance, it's a lot different than just handling steel beams, which are inert. Munitions aren't vulnerable to... Typically, to spark, or you know, they're not they they're not off gassing, and a lot of them need to be armed with a. Um, That's what I would imagine. It's not like a room in a cartoon uh, artillery room where it's just full of these red skyrocket looking things with you know triangle co- conical tips, right? That can all just go off in one spark, right? No, there but are they, safeguards. They are vulnerable, obviously, to heat, mm. and in many cases, I mean, there are different. Uh, TNT and explosive matter has different uh, stability, different fragility, and some of them are a lot less stable than others. One of the nice things about, I mean, one of the things about the invention of dynamite was that it was stable. It was what made Nobel his fortune was that he'd invented a stable form of explosive. But even he wasn't buying that because he felt so bad. He did. He felt bad. Really, he should have felt good. Like... Explosives used to be unstable. I'm just making them safer. I'm making the world safer. It meant that fewer people handling explosives got blown up, but by making them safer, it, it, <laughs> it, it allowed them to proliferate. I see. So that's why he funded his famous namesake prizes. And it worked. It worked. When people talk about Nobel today, do you think about uh, dynamite? No. no. you think about Malala. That's or... right. You think about uh, Obama getting his Nobel Prize. <laughs> Peace in our time. But uh, loading munitions, I mean, you know, being a loader is not like your top job anywhere, right? Uh, it's like a, 20 minutes of training. You see a little movie. Being a stevedore isn't, isn't your number one gig. Um, but this was during an era of the segregated military. In fact, an era of the, se- the United States was segregated. We're in, yeah, the segregated military is in its second century at this point, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and although African-Americans served in every branch of the military throughout from the Revolutionary War, War forward, this was still a time when black soldiers were largely commanded by white officers. And uh, although there were black officers. A small number of black officers in World number. War II. And in particular, the Navy, uh, typically uh, black naval seamen were given jobs as orderlies and uh, as given much more menial tasks. That was probably common in all the branches, right? They were mostly non-combat support kind of things. They were uh, well, quartermasters you know, and There cooks. were Tuskegee Airmen. There, sure. were, uh, there were infantry soldiers that actually did quite a bit of fighting. But, but in the Navy, which was much more uh, confined to ship, and in a way, the hierarchy in the Navy is, is much more evident just in terms of like, are you on a high deck or a low deck? <laughs> so black sailors were, you know, were segregated even more. And there was a, the naval training for black sailors was, took place largely at the Naval Station Great Lakes. And there was a mandate. Where is the Naval Station Great Lakes? Well, oh, it's in, it, it's, it's, it's there it, on the Great Lakes. Oh, okay. 
in the the Middle West. Well, you're about to get to a place called Chicago that is nowhere near Chicago. So. Right. So we're, we're but this, you're in the actual Great Lakes. This episode is called the Port Chicago disaster, and Port Chicago also, also my favorite Gordon Lightfoot song, by yeah, the way. The, oh, the Port Chicago disaster. Uh, Port Chicago actually is in the region of Concord, California. It's not related to Chicago at all, but the naval station Great Lakes is actually in Chicago. Oh, uh, confusingly. Yeah, right. Uh, Port Chicago is in California. Naval Station Great Lakes is maybe more aptly named. Uh, it's on Lake Michigan in North Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was where black sailors were trained. And they were given a mandate that the top 30% or so of the graduates were the, the cream of the crop. And they were sort of taken off and given and turned into petty officers and given more responsibility elsewhere. Uh, and then then uh, graduates were sort of distributed throughout the Navy depending on their rank. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I'm interested in the, uh, you know, the institutional segregation of the military probably has, you know, it has something to do with just the segregation of all of American life and the discomfort of white servicemen working with black servicemen. But specifically, a lot of it dates back to the Civil War, right? And American fears about, you know, do not arm African Americans because... It could all go wrong. Yeah, and actually there was a... You know, whites were not comfortable with the idea of a strong-armed African-American segment of the population. They weren't, but it was often... I mean, uh, black servicemen in World War I performed really valiantly. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of... uh, Within the rhetoric of Woodrow Wilson's conduct throughout World War I... He's kind of a racist, by the way. He is a racist, but he was talking to the world in terms of, and his racism wasn't necessarily evident during the war. He was talking to the world about the liberation of the world's people, right? Mm -hmm. If you were a Serb living under the Ottoman Empire or living under the the Austro-Hungary, or if you were a Kurd or a... uh, Armenian that didn't have your own national autonomy. Uh, Wilson talked about the end of World War One as being this tremendous opportunity to free the world's enslaved people. So he's delivering democracy. Yeah, and this was the this was the whole Treaty of Versailles kind of struggle was how to, he's dealing with colonial powers, France and England. They're not heavily motivated to give anybody independence. They're really not. And and although Wilson had a lot of authority globally, he was seen as a, uh, as a liberator. Then he got into, you know, those closed rooms with Clemenceau and, and, had a lot of pushback. And so you men end with, up... Men with monocles beat it out of him? They sure did. And that's how you end up with all those confusing borders in the Middle East and why why the Palestine was put under a mandate, a British mandate, and Syria was under a French mandate, and blah, 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 blah. Are you saying that a multiracial American force was part of the rhetoric here? Well... It was part of the vision? Definitely the black soldiers within the U.S. Army and the Marines during World War One who had dramatically outperformed uh, expectations, right? Well, the expectations all came from racist stereotypes about uh, African-Americans being cowards. Right. Which was kind of a wishful thinking Southern plantation, like, these guys are all just, you know, they, they won't stick up to us. They won't stand up to us. Well, and the officer class of the U.S. military has traditionally come from, you know, Southern aristocratic types, right? Huh. And the Virginia Military Institute and so forth, 
produced the officer class, not the whole of it, but a, a large proportion of it. And so when Wilson was giving the world this idea of, of um, liberation mm-hmm. and presenting himself as a liberator, African-Americans saw this through a lens of their own liberation and that he couldn't possibly be out freeing the people of Azerbaijan. And not us. And not us who have performed so valiantly uh, in defense of the American cause. But Wilson was a ra- a personally like a racist, but also very, very uh, sympathetic to racist causes. And when black American servicemen returned to the United States with a sense of their own accomplishment and with a sort of you know, a desire to capitalize on this historic moment, they were violently suppressed. And Wilson refused to, he didn't actively suppress them, but refused to intervene. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and it was a, it was one of a dozen betrayals of the promise to you know, start all the way back to 40, 40 acres and a mule. Sure, Reconstruction. And, and it's, I'm sure similar things happened after World War II. I, jumping ahead of it, I'm sure newly empowered black men came home from Europe only to find they were still worse than second-class citizens. Well, we'll get to that. That's a, that's interesting because this is the, the Port Chicago disaster comes at a very interesting moment in history. So to get back to Port Chicago, throughout the war, this was this munitions loading depot. And it was staffed largely by African-American sailors who, although they had trained to achieve actual ratings in the Navy, like, so in the Navy, you receive your rank, but also your specialty. So you have, you know, your uh, uh, boatswain or a a construction rating or a medical rating. Are these like merit badges you accumulate or you get put into one path like a Hogwarts house? Yeah, it's like a Hogwarts house. Uh, You know, (laughs) you're... Thank thank you for helping me understand the military through uh, YA, (laughs) millennial YA novels. You're you're an explosives ordinance person, for instance. And that's that's uh actually a, a, a track, a career track, or a boatswain's mate, or a fireman, or a... I want to be a boatswain. I would right? ask for, I want to, I want something with a lot of apostrophes like bosun or folksal. Right. If I'm in the Navy. These are, and, the, and, and there are older ratings and newer ratings. Some of them go back to the, you know, the British Navy pre-revolutionary war. And some of them are, you know, a, a nuclear power uh, ratings. But most of these uh, black servicemen had actual naval ratings, but were transferred to this naval munition station and utilized as just stevedores. Uh, Essentially just hired labor. Just labor. And because of the chaos of war, but also because of um, prejudice and segregation, this was considered kind of a low-ranking job. And it was, I mean, obviously, and the servicemen that were given this job were the the lowest 10% of the graduates of the Naval Station Great Lakes. And maybe this is foreshadowing, but was there also some idea of uh, this is too dangerous for w- white men with families to be doing? Or was it really more like, yeah, this is just grunt work? I, yeah, a combination of the two. I mean, it's... But there was some recognition that this was dangerous stuff. Send your expendable guys, a.k.a. minorities. It wasn't... I mean, you, you, there were munitions dumps all around the 
the world, and they typically didn't explode unless somebody dropped a bomb on them. Okay. And if you, you know, if you successfully dropped a bomb on a munitions dump, boy, you had, you'd scored a big victory. That's something to see. Because, yeah, it's, there's the, there's the, the collateral effect, you know, one explosion next to a live shell. Take out a city. Yeah, right. It can keep exploding. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so the base was put under the command of a white officer by the name of captain merrill kinney or I, I'm just going to go with Kinney. It's K-I-N-N-E. It could, I don't think there's an accent on the E, so it's probably not Kinney. Kinney sounds right. Kinney. Let's go with Kinney. Although, you know, that is also a K-E-N-N-E-Y. You know, I, my reputation on this show is, someone, is of someone who doesn't know how to pronounce words. So I'm pretty comfortable mispronouncing all these this names. This is your own personal cavalry. And the, as the... As the explosives ordinance rating would suggest, this is a specific job. To safely handle munitions is a job that you train for. But none of these people were given training in munitions handling, including Captain Kinney, who had no experience with dealing with explosives. Is that because of a wartime thing? People are being promoted quickly. People are being moved around a lot. The goals are changing. You know, this was just considered a job and huh. Captain Kinney was given it as a part of uh, this wasn't maybe a, a sideline to his career but it wasn't it, it's not like a posting in the Pentagon right especially you know he's overseeing a bunch of African-American soldiers that's probably not a feather in your cap right then. you're not getting any battlefield awards for this job it's a, log- a logistics job but he takes an approach to it that could only come from someone who who had no experience with Munitions. Oh, what's what's his approach? <laughs> well, he he passes a, or he sends out a, a memo encouraging the different groups of loaders to start competing against one another in how fast they can load the tonnage oh. of bombs and guns. He's and trying to invent explosives. gamification early. Yeah, he's gamifying it uh, and encouraging the different loading groups to try and get a maximum, you know, like who can load the most the fastest. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he's heard stories of transcontinental railroad companies doing stuff like this. Yeah, and, and he's like, well, sh- you know, let's like help the war effort. And so he sets a goal of like 10 short tons an hour, which... But- that seems like a lot. Far exceeds even professional stevedores, uh, uh, their rate of loading just normal cargo, uh, normal like 
Quaker oats and uh, macaroni and cheese, they're not able to arrive or to achieve 10 short tons an hour. I don't know if there's evidence for this, but I like to imagine him as some kind of autocratic type, you know, since I know there's a mutiny coming in this story. <laughs> like, I like to imagine that he's a just a very stern, inexperienced, not well-liked leader. He's an, he's an inexperienced, and you can only imagine, a white officer dealing with a group of what are considered in the Navy low-performing black sailors, right. none of whom have any experience not only with explosive ordnance, but with loading. I mean, these sailors aren't they're not stevedores. Steve, they're not they're, any stevedores union. They just got... They just got this bad job. And we have to remember that now we're living now in an era of container shipping where things come on rail cars and those rail cars are lifted up with cranes and stacked inside the hold of a boat. But this was a time, and, and container shipping is fairly recent technological development. This was at a time, much like the movie On the Waterfront, Marlon Brando's breakout role, where- uh, Could have been somebody- where a boxcar would have been arrive. a contender. <laughs> good. I don't know why I'm doing a Vito Corleone brand. It's good. Uh, uh, Fredo. <laughs> oh, Frodo. He, he could have, Take he, the ring. He could have been a contender. A that's, contender. that's what he could have been. Yeah. Um, a boxcar would arrive. You would open the door and it would be full of shells. And you would. And shells are not, you know, they might be round, right? Or are they in big crates? They are shaped like big tubes and they're covered in grease. And you. Wow. You would take crates or just individual sort of pallets of these shells, unload them into, often into nets. And then the crane often would be on the boat and it would lift up a net full of shells and then lower it into the hold by winch. And there would be men in the hold that would then unload the net and stack the, the crates or the shells then down in the hole. And I'm sure nothing goes wrong. This Hard. entry is called the port Chicago disaster because of some kind of logistical disaster or what could go wrong in a situation like this, especially when you're being encouraged to load as much as right. you can, Ten as fast short as tons you can. an hour. So to beat red company or the, red team, there was an awful lot of like the shells would come down in the net and, you know, a sailor would take one and kind of huck it to another. And then that guy would sort of plop it into place on top of the other shells. And some of the shells were, would arrive in their destination dented visibly Yikes. like dented, but the loaders, the sailors themselves had been told by their superiors that because the shells weren't armed, uh, they weren't primed, that they presented no threat. There was no uh, danger of them exploding. So think about that. They'd be treating these exactly as they would some kind of inert, creative, whatever. You quick know? oats, yeah. right. You can just toss that in there. Uh, and this was of great concern to a lot of people that had experience with munitions. You would get Navy people come by and take a look at what was going on and they would report up the chain, this is really bad. This is unsafe. It's not, uh, you shouldn't race to load munitions. And, you know, the, like competition is the wrong methodology. But also, this equipment isn't maintained very well. Um, the winches often were rusty and poorly looked after. Uh, winches had a, a system of mechanical brakes that would hold the hold the cables like emergency, like the brakes on an elevator for yeah, example. an emergency brake because a lot of them were steam powered. Mm. And so if you lost steam, you would 
you know, have these brakes that would... Uh, drop shells from the air. Or, or the, keep shells from falling. Yeah. And actually on the day of the, or the day before, I guess, the, the Port Chicago incident, one of the cranes that was being used to load some of the most fragile or most volatile uh, munitions was discovered to not have functioning brakes. Um, but it wasn't deemed a problem because a competent crane operator eschewed brakes. Uh, it was considered a, you know, it was... Wimps use brakes. Wimps use brakes. And you could just use your, use the winch and and its various powers to uh, to move stuff without ever having to stop and brake. I'm sure it's a real ballet when you're a winch genius. That's right. So often it seems like these things don't come out of nowhere, whether it's Space Shuttle Challenger or 9-11 or always after the fact, you can look back at the three or four people who were like, hey, you know what? We shouldn't, uh, guys, like, you know, tugging on their collar, like, you know, what are you? Yeah, should we, can I? In fact, there was a commander by the name of Paul Kronk who uh, was a Coast Guard commander who brought a detail of professional explosives handlers to assist in the loading. And he saw conditions, reported them upstream, got you know, nothing back or a, you know, carry on as you, as you will. That's uh, what always happens. Order. And he actually removed his detail and said, we're out. because." Ah. So by this time, there was some awareness that there was risk to people. There had been for a while and it was just ignored, not only by Merrill T. Kinney, but by his superiors. Everybody, I mean, there'd been a lot of reports of fumes and uh, broken equipment and hazard, not unsafe, hazardous practice. Uh, so on the fateful day of July 17th, 1944, somewhat late in the war, mm -hmm. uh, there were a couple of ships tied up together on a dock. One of them was the SS EA Bryan, which was a, a victory ship, so a ship that was headed to the Pacific. What does a victory ship even mean? A victory ships were... So just like a hopeful name for a boat? No, in America, after Pearl Harbor, you know, we had a very small oh. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines prior to the war. So there was a vast ramping up of shipbuilding. Right. And this is, when you look at the Japanese decision to instigate war with the United States, uh, there's a famous quote that's, you know, maybe apocryphal, but credited to Yamamoto, the admiral that was in charge of, the, of Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor, right? Uh, but who was very reluctant, you know, he, he thought it was a terrible idea. He carried it out because it was a, an order. But uh, when he was congratulated for the success of Pearl Harbor, he supposedly famously said, uh, I fear all we have done is to awaken a sleeping giant. And that is, in fact, the case, right? When, when the American war effort ramped up, we were suddenly able to produce ships and planes and tanks in such proliferation that no, I mean, the Germans and the Japanese had no chance. So a victory ship is like a victory garden. It's part of the, it's part of the war effort. It's like, we yeah, will, we will attain victory through this shipbuilding enterprise. North American shipyards were charged with this task because the Germans definitely waged naval war almost exclusively with submarines, mm -hmm. right? They don't, the Germans only had a couple of battleships and they, performed no ro real role in the war except kind of being scary. They kind of to tootled around in the Baltic Sea and were and threatened 
Uh, but they, they were submarine warfare people, and they fought a war of attrition, just sinking supply ships over and over. And so we built supply ships to just overwhelm them because not only were we building our own war material, but we were supplying the Russians, the British, uh, the Australians. I mean, we, sure. we supplied the, the world, and the we, free world. Rather. If we can't save the supply ships, just build so many, they can't, they can't, they sink can't them all. torpedo all of them. Right. And we could do that with airplanes. We could do that with munitions. So these were victory ships and they were, uh, we built so many of them and we were using them in our own military as well. But so these two ships, the, uh, the EA Breton and I'm sorry. It, it was Brian a second ago. Yeah, it was. Did the <laughs> ship just did the ship just get taken by the French? I just love pronouncing things with a French accent. The Breton. <laughs> they won a blue ribbon. No, the EA the EA Brian and then another victory ship called the SS Quinault, which is actually a Pacific Northwest Indian tribe. You didn't say Kino? You didn't the, try to franchise the, it? The Quinault. The qu the Quinoa. We have our own way of pronouncing things up here. The SS Kinwa shipped uh, ancient grains all over the world. It's Puyallup, not Puyallup. <laughs> uh, they were tied up together. The the uh, the Brian was was being loaded and had been largely loaded. It was full of bunker oil because it was being prepared to make the Pacific crossing. Uh, the Quinault also full of oil, uh, and they are being loaded with these rusty cranes by these inexperienced sailors and no one survives to know exactly what happened. Oh, wow. But people kind of at a distance reported hearing a kind of screeching of machinery and the crunching of a dock and then immediately following an enormous explosion where the entire uh, Brian exploded and was disintegrated. Uh, the Quinault was thrown hundreds of feet in the air, split into multiple pieces where a section of the boat ended up over here, a section of the boat ended up over here. I've heard uh, accounts of pilots, you know, who were flying at 9,000 feet or whatever, saying they're seeing metal just whizzing past them. Right, metal and, and, and unexploded munitions oh, boy. Uh, flying like through the air, landing all over in the, in the community. Like a three-mile fireball? A fireball. That's hard to imagine. Three miles in circumference. Um, and felt as far away as Nevada, I see. That's crazy. It was, a, it was it registered as a 3.4 earthquake <laughs> on the Richter scale. So everyone just, the whole base essentially killed instantly? Or everyone right there at those ships? So there were 320 men who died instantly. Yikes. Uh, just vaporized. 202 of whom were African-American. And because also 390 people were injured, a lot of them severely. And this didn't happen in, in the middle of a city, right? This was just a Navy base. They're, the people in the immediate vicinity were all sailors and most of, and, and, and a few, you know, civilian contractors. Obviously, if it had happened in the middle of a town, it, a three-mile right. kind of fireball would have done a lot more damage. Uh, 237 African-American sailors injured, and the casualty rate of this one incident represented 15% of all African-American casualties in World War II. Wow. Yeah. And just in a second. Uh, and of the 320 people instantly killed, only 51 were individually identifiable. The remaining 200 and... 70 were just 
vaporized. And so in the immediate aftermath, you know, a lot of valiant sailors rushed in to put out the flames. And then immediately we needed to start reconstructing this base because it provided an indispensable uh, part of the war effort. And so the base was hastily rebuilt and there was a, a lot of finger pointing as to who was responsible. Um, the, it was, it was pretty. Was there a tendency to blame the, uh, the black soldiers because there's nobody to, you know, nobody to stick up for them? Well, it was pretty documented that Kinney had had this like race uh, aspect to his loading policies. Uh, lo- uh, the white officers that were commanding the sailors were also completely untrained as uh, loaders or ordnance people were widely understood to be fairly incompetent. Hmm. So there was a lot of finger pointing, finger pointing, finger pointing, and the inquiry ended up uh, being inconclusive. I mean, this would be crazy today. Imagine during wartime with the outcome in both theaters still in doubt for something like this to happen. Huge propaganda blow. A propaganda blow, and there, and a large part of the investigation was to determine whether this was sabotage. Ah, uh, right. Because there, there had been a case, right? Or were there cases where U.S. Ships were taken out in their docks by saboteurs, or was that just uh There was a famous incident on the East Coast right, where a bunch of German of. Uh, saboteurs were deposited on U.S. shores, dressed in civilian clothes, all speaking fluent English. Hello, fellow Americans. Hello, fellow teens. Show us to the battleships. <laughs> uh, but they were all uh, very quickly discovered and round okay. up. Uh, I think there were, you know, some some people out in... Narragansett Bay or whatever said, why are these guys in fedoras running on the beach at two o'clock in the morning? And they were all discovered. And But just and, from the Hollywood movies of the time, I know that this was a fear, a fear in the American psyche, like who, who among us is trying to blow stuff up? And of course, it's a great plot device for a home front. Sure. Movie. So sure. In, and, in the and, movies, it's, there's, there's Germans under every, under every fedora. How do you even conduct a war if you don't turn your own population into a bunch of paranoid, uh, like, spies upon one another. I mean, why would you want to? That's the yeah, fun of it. That's right. That is the fun. And we see that even today in our own time. Oh boy, do we. But the real goal was to just get this base back up and running. And um, the Navy had a policy of giving a 30-day leave uh, to sailors who had been involved in a, a major conflict where they'd seen their friends die. A, you know, like... Uh, traumatic incidences, the Navy granted leave because it was understood that you can't put a person right back to work. Yeah, not just out of the goodness of their heart. I mean, yeah. those, those off, those aren't, they're not going to be doing a great job after that. Yeah, people were shattered mm-hmm. by the experience. Uh, and a lot of, of the black sailors su- submitted for this leave. They were all denied. Um, wow. Although the white officers' requests for leave were granted. Interesting. So Weird. Were, How do you account for that difference? Crazy. Yeah. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. 
Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com start. The white officers went uh, on leave, but uh, the black sailors were not granted leave because it was suggested that we needed to get them right back to work because by golly, if we if we give them any time to think about it, you know, it'll be worse for them. You know, nothing, nothing makes a black sailor happier than being given some work by some white officers. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of the American <laughs> myth of the, you know, that goes back to the slavery era and sure. the, just the happy plantation workers singing. And as long as you don't interfere, everything's great. You yeah. Know? The total, it's a Keep those mean, agitators out because look how happy they are. Total plantation mentality. As long as, you know, you, you have to dehumanize people to treat them like that. And part of the, result is that you don't actually validate any kind of emotional state because that would implicate you. You have to kind of pretend they're as if they're robots or livestock or something. Right. And in this case, they were not ordered back to work initially, but asked to go back to work. They weren't given leave, <laughs> uh, but what? they're- Is there a third option? <laughs> well, they're, they're, the officers came in and said, you know, will you go back to work? and load these ships because we need it for the war. And the vast majority of the surviving sailors uh, said no. (laughs) 68%, hell no. Said uh, it's really unsafe down there, and we always knew it was, but nobody listened to us. Right. And then, you know, we were speed loading these bombs, and we were all terrified the whole time, and now it's been proved correct. Uh, and we don't want to go back to work under those conditions, under these same, I mean, it's not like Merrill Kinney was relieved of duty. There's no new cranes or anything. No new cranes. So it's no, me twice, shame on me. No new, and the officers came back from their 30 day leave and were just like, Hey, he's back. And so 328 of the sailors refused when they were. That doesn't go over well in the military, right? Well, it was somewhat understandable. And so there was a, I mean, I was completely understandable. I understand it, but I'm, I'm picturing a white officer not being on board. Yeah. The next day, uh, some officer said, well, you know, we really need this for the war effort. And 70 of the sailors said, okay, sure. And, uh, returned to work. But by the following day, 258 sailors still refused to go. And a a black petty officer by the name of Joe Small was appointed. And so they were confined. They were all confined to a mess hall because they were. They're in violation of an order. Yeah. That well, and it still hadn't really. Oh, it's not to the level of an order yet. An order. It's a hey guys. It's a hey guys. And in a in in a couple of situations, white officers later reported that they had ordered Hmm. people, but it was like I ordered those four guys. Uh, and generally the, the men that had been directly ordered by some Lieutenant, you know, like you, you four, I order you to, to go to work. Those 
the men who had been directly ordered were among the ones who had gone back to work. Hmm. None of the mute, none of the who were subsequently described as mutineers, had any had actually been directly ordered. Uh, Joe Small was was put in charge of the of the group internally, and they were actually being guarded by black soldiers. And Small tried to organize the group into a kind of collective, largely as a self-defense mechanism. Like, look, if we stay together, like we're not going to, they're not going to, but but stay together under military discipline. Like we're not defying them. We're just refusing to do this. You know, we're not trying to usurp their authority. But we'll, we have, just, we'll have some kind of bargaining power that cannot be ignored. Right. We don't want to get sent down into this uh, killing field again. Uh, at which point, a Navy admiral by the name of Admiral White showed up and gave a rousing speech. His name is Admiral White? Admiral White. It's I'm little, afraid so. It's a little on the nose. You know, history likes to play these kinds of games. <laughs> admiral White showed admiral up. Admiral Cracker shows up. <laughs> admiral Massa shows up. And he gives a rousing speech where he says, we need you men because people are dying overseas. You know, our soldiers, our, our Marines are being killed and we need these munitions to fight the war. At which point the vast majority of the sailors return to work. Mm-hmm. But 50 remained intransigent, led by Joe Small. And they refused on on principle, again, never having been given a direct order, they refused to return to work and were charged immediately with mutiny. Mutiny. Now, so mutiny strikes me as a very 19th century, 18th century kind of a crime, but... Uh, mutiny is a is a capital crime in the armed Can forces. you only mutiny in the Navy? Do you have to have a boat to mutiny? Or can like... Uh, no, you can, can mutiny, an airman I think. mutiny? Yeah, you, mutiny is any situation where you are, uh, where you're trying to overthrow the leadership. So this is it's not just disobeying an order. This is actually the yeah, the idea of a mutiny is you're putting the captain in the brig that's and, right. and, and you, now Fletcher Christians running the you ship. You take Captain Bly and you put him in a boat and you send him off. Right. Um and so in the subsequent it seems a little seems a little much here in this case. Well is mutiny a, is mutiny a stretch here? A, again, it's a stretch that has racial overtones. Mm. The fear of a um, it's like a Nat Turner slave revolt. That's right. The fear of the of a revolt, uh, rather than just a group of sailors who are doing a work stoppage, and this would have been called a strike if it were happening in the civilian world. Mm-hmm. But you can't strike in the military. It's not they don't recognize. They it. have airstrikes. Yes, they do you, not have labor. Strikes. You can't go on a labor strike there because you're not at your liberty to make your own personal decisions. But in this case, it would have been, I mean, it's a much different charge to be charged with disobeying an order than it is. It reveals a lot of institutional fears of the fact that, boy, we got, what, hundreds of thousands of black soldiers? If they, What if they all start organizing like this? Well, that is a, that was a real fear. And we're talking about a very segregated military at the time and, and a, a military operating within the segregated United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, a newspaper called the Pittsburgh Courier, which was an African-American newspaper that was kind of widely distributed in the country. Oh, it's nationwide. It's black community nationwide, even though it's printed in Pittsburgh. Printed in Pittsburgh and, you know, and became a kind of one of the de facto mouthpieces of, you know, black thinking in America during the war. Started a campaign called the Double V Campaign, which was victory over tyranny overseas and victory <laughs> here at home. Second V. 
because, you know, if you were a soldier, even a decorated one, even an officer who was traveling through the South, you still couldn't use a drinking fountain or the same toilet or stay in a hotel. I've read a World War II story, and I think this is true about a, a black soldier on a train, a serviceman asked to give up his seat for a Nazi POW. Because that's the pecking order. I, I, that sounds apocryphal, but it might, in fact, be the case. I mean, I don't know. Uh, that seems a little, a little bit far. But c'est possible, right? As we say in, in uh, the French that we use here on our show. Yeah, we often do the podcast once in English and then once in French. Right. We don't know who's going to find this. But the trial of the 50, which was happening during the war, was a, a major news event. Good luck getting a fair trial during wartime. And it was not a fair trial. The officers were, because a, a Navy trial isn't just with right. one this judge. This is a court-martial. This yeah, is not a... And there was, you know, every suggestion that there that a fair trial wouldn't, wouldn't be possible. And so a little-known historical personage, no less than Thurgood Marshall himself. Whoa, a young Thurgood Marshall? A young Thurgood Marshall who was a leader in the NAACP came and observed the trial. And then took his observations public and he, made some... He's not representing the soldier. He's not a military lawyer. He's not. But he was, he was in a position to take his perspective on it and publicize it in a national way. Mm -hmm. And he said that these sailors are being unfairly tried. There's no reference in the trial to the unsafe conditions. Oh, really? There was um, no reference in the trial to the speed loading and any of that stuff. Uh, it was all sort of hinging on whether or not they had there was uh, whether Joe Small and his gang had had organized organized uh, a rebellion, right? Uh, and arguing whether or not it qualified as a mutiny or not, and this type of thing. And Thurgood Marshall made quite a a public. He turned it into a what it actually already was, which was a public referendum. It, did it become a, a progressive cause where? you know, right-thinking people suddenly were sticking up for the Port Chicago 50? It absolutely did, and, and it went all the way up to Eleanor Roosevelt. Right, that's who you would try to get. Right, who, who, who forwarded on uh, some of these writings to the commanders and said, I would like you to pay particular careful attention to this. Wow, so you've got a sitting first lady yeah. writing to the Joint Chiefs or the Secretary of Defense or whatever about an ongoing prosecution, a court-martial during wartime. Right. That is nutty. Uh, but predictably, the court found them all guilty and sentenced them all to 15 years of hard labor and dishonorable discharges. Wow. Uh, but Thurgood Marshall organized an appeal. And throughout the rest of the war, their sentences were, you know, at first uh, on appeal, their sentences were reduced each by a year. And then there were, you know, subsequent appeals and public appeals to the Navy. One of the uh, Navy captains responsible for lowering the charges here I see is Harold Stassen, who would go on to become GOP governor of Minnesota and one of these, in our lifetimes, a perennial presidential candidate. Yeah, right. You know, the kind of guy that's always on the ballot under the the People's Freedom Party yeah, or whatever. Yeah, the, the Romney of the, of the nut cases. Like seven times on the ballot. <laughs> uh -huh. But yeah, this is the first time I hear of him is, uh, is reducing sentences because he's in the Navy. A lot of people show up here. I mean, the... Uh, the public prosecutor of Alameda County uh, was Earl Warren. Oh, prior really? and and uh, you know prior to this, and one of the prosecutors had come out of the Warren 
uh, the Warren office. So this was, I mean, this was a uh, turning point moment. And then at the end of the war, there was a lot of reevaluating of wartime prosecutions. A big part of the logic that the Navy was using was that we needed to make an example of these men right. in order to forestall any other potential mutinies, let, you know, especially among black sailors. There's more on the line when the war is still ongoing. But at the end of the war, that was no longer a justification. And a lot of prosecutions were deferred. A lot of sailors were given amnesty. Because there were other cases, I, you know, you, you, in a long war, you probably have hundreds of cases or thousands of ongoing prosecutions of people who did not follow an order or were not judged to be valiant in battle or yeah, and I, and conscientious I think objectors of one kind or another. There was, you know, there was... There must have been a whole system churning through these cases. I think shy of 2,000 sailors were exonerated at the end of the war just... Because it was... Because, hey, V-Day, V-Day yeah. Day. Yeah, everybody Go kiss your girlfriend. Let's just, you know, let's just bygones be bygones. And maybe people felt bad about their behavior in some of these overly rigorous prosecutions or court mar courts martial. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff like this. Like, it needs to be... These men need to be held an example. And, you know, of course, like... They were just goofs. Who yeah, they ran, were just ran afoul of an MP. Uh, and, you know, there, there was one guy who refused to load ordnance because he had his arm in a sling and another guy refused to, uh, to load ordnance because he was a cook. And were these, he, were these among the Port Chicago 50? Yeah. Oh, wow. So a lot of people had their own individual reasons. Yeah. I mean, and none of them had ever been actually given a direct order to do it. Hmm. Um, but at the end of the war in, by, uh, in 1946, uh, 47 of the 50 men were released and rather than being given dishonorable discharges, they were given shit jobs in the Navy. They were sent out to, you know, clean up the, the spilled popcorn of Navy bases around the South Pacific, but eventually brought home and given a general discharge. There were, uh, like Joe Small, unfortunately, was not given uh, a pardon and did do a little bit of hard time. Oh, he did. He actually did time. But this situation brought to the fore, um, it was in a way the fuse that lit the powder keg that ended up in a way exploding the segregated military. Do you think Truman maybe doesn't desegregate in 48 if not for the furor on the Port Chicago mutiny? I, I do. I think that the Port Chicago disaster and subsequent quote unquote mutiny. I guess I shouldn't say mutiny. We should uh, give more scrutiny to the mutiny. What should we say? The, well done. More <laughs> scrutiny to the mutiny. What are we supposed to say if mutiny is the, is the language of the oppressor here? It's the Port Chicago well, I, and I, difference of opinion. I'm going to say mutiny in quotes, but I think, it, you know, I think this was another uh, moment in the career of Thurgood Marshall and a moment where the black press and the, you know, the American left and the African-American community had spent the war wrestling. I mean, I think probably spent the, the period from Woodrow Woodrow Wilson forward trying to figure out how you could have a segregated military with black heroes where the country was so grossly unequal. Uh, and in 1948, as you say, Truman does desegregate the military. It took a while 
to fully for the military to fully embrace it. Throughout the Korean War, there were still all black regiments. And even when it was institutionally embraced, it may not have been there. I'm sure there was individual resistance. And I say this based on conversations with my now late grandpa, who <laughs> right. was in Korea and as late as the, you know, in his 80s, was still kind of rumbling about how Truman made a mistake and, yeah. you know, Bless his heart. He was a racist man of his generation who did not want to be working with black men on the job. Well, I still talk to uh, much older chief petty officers. In the, I've, you know, I've met quite a few of them in the recent years uh, because I was Seattle's King Neptune last year. You are always, you never miss a chance to yeah. mention that you were King Neptune. But I've heard, you know, the scuttlebutt at the petty officer club that, uh, boy, the Navy, once they admitted women, it really, the, oh, the Navy's really gone downhill. You're, you're still, that's still a little more acceptable to say. You yeah. can't really be ruining uh Well, you can't say it in the presence officers. of female, but petty officers, I don't think. But Truman actually made it illegal in, in desegregating the military, made it illegal within the military to make racist comments. Wow. And I don't think that was as readily embraced <laughs> uh, even today. And it, it took until 1954 for the military to truly be desegregated. But then we saw complications in Vietnam where the draft uh, drew on a disproportionately large number of African-Americans. So all of a sudden you, you were fighting a war with a military that was in some cases largely black. Uh, so every good deed has its, uh, has its ugly other side. It does produce the interesting dynamic you see in the military today where uh, it just tends to be working class people from both backgrounds, people who grew up, you know, poor whites in poor white areas, as well as, you know, serving right alongside African-Americans. Right. And, you know, there's quite a bit of still, you know, sort of self-segregation as far as the socialization of the military. But you have these people being, you know, pushed together on bases, all posts and bases all over the world where there's really nobody else to hang out with but each other. And it creates a very strange, many of them are politically conservative. It creates a very strange dynamic you don't see anywhere else in American life. Right. You don't see as many young poets from Vermont uh, acting as privates in the in the army. Uh, yeah, it's not, it's not a romantic. Nobody has romantic notions of joining the military anymore. Yeah. For good reason. Well, so the 50 remained under this, this cloud. Oh, and I should also say by putting Thurgood Marshall on a national stage for the first time, this incident kind of sets up Brown v. Board. Yes, it does. Which he argued before the Supreme Court. Yes, it does. And and which ends up with Thurgood Marshall as the first black chief or the first black justice of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was, you know, uh, these were uh, heightened times. And a lot of these things, I think, would have happened in the fullness of time or even in the shortness of time. But a few of these incidents really sparked a national conversation on the topic. And what happened to the men you were going to say? Well, so as late as the Clinton administration, uh, they were being encouraged to appeal uh, for uh, a vacation of the sentences or for, uh, you know, for clemency. And the vast majority of the men still alive refused to do it because they felt like you, you couldn't exonerate them because they had never been guilty. Oh, interesting. They're resistant to uh, to seeking any kind of clemency. Yeah, they felt like it it was an injustice and that they weren't going to a appeal for clemency. But a man named Freddie Meeks did appeal for a vacation of the sentence on behalf of everyone. He wanted it brought to the national attention mm. because this was a, then afterwards, you know, sort of like a closed chapter. 
Uh, he wanted it revisited. And in September of 1999, he was finally pardoned by President Bill Clinton, uh, and he died a few short years later. But uh, there, there are still efforts to now, in most cases, and I think maybe in all cases, posthumously exonerate all 50 sailors. Uh, but nothing has nothing formal has happened. Nothing formal has happened. Although there is now a memorial to the sailors at Port Chicago. I'm not holding my breath for the next two and a half years, but it could happen uh, someday. I hope by the time you listen to this, there's been a full reckoning and pardon for the Port Chicago 50. And that concludes the Port Chicago disaster. Entry number 967.AC1940, certificate number 32844, in the omnibus. We hope for your own good, listeners, that social media does not exist in your era, but just to show the dedication that John and I had to this project, we were tireless in promoting and researching it on the various social media platforms of our day. We were products of our time. We even used Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We didn't like it, but you could find us at Omnibus Project on all of the above. Uh, I was I tweet as at Ken Jennings, John as at John Roderick. We are reachable via email at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. There is also a Facebook fan group called the Futurelings that allows us to interact with the vast and endlessly interested audience of our project. Uh, Futurelings, we have no idea whether or not the Port Chicago incident is celebrated in your time like the 4th of July. As a, as a pivotal moment in the liberation of all people. If it is, I hope there's no fireworks. Seems like that would be in poor Ooh, taste. right. Although, you know, rockets red glare, bombs bursting in air. We do have a habit of... Just of, celebrating the Fort McHenry. Like, what if you or your ancestors had died at Fort McHenry? You wouldn't be that happy about yeah. re- reenacting their deaths with colorful fireworks. But, you know, a fusillade is like how you, how you celebrate great victories. There's, there's almost no, I've had many victories in my life. I've celebrated none of them with a fusillade. I mean, I do, but it's usually a fusillade of popcorn. I mean, <laughs> I make popcorn and I throw it in the air. I don't think Jiffy Pop counts as a fusillade. Uh, we hope and pray that, that uh, although we, we take no, no stance on whether or not you shoot off fireworks to celebrate the Port Chicago incident, uh, we do hope and pray that the looming catastrophe never comes because we... The big firework. Yeah, because we love to keep stirring up people's panic as a way of driving listeners to our show. Uh, but if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if the side gods allow... The side gods? The side gods. What are side gods? Well, if you, if you don't want to take a side between the, the god above oh. and the god below... You, you choose the side gods. We've <laughs> talked about them before. I didn't know that there's a whole side pantheon. <laughs> the side gods. Is that like a uh, Judeo-Christian god? Not 100% sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Um, you don't want to go with the Dark Lord. But, you know, but Janus, the two-headed Roman god of possibilities. Why not? Well, or all Lower the, stakes. You know, all the saints where you're like, oh, I'm praying to the saint of, of uh, like, hot buttered popcorn. You have mentioned popcorn at least three times in this entry, although it has little or possibly even nothing to do with the Port Chicago disaster. No, it has zero to do. Are you just hungry for popcorn? I've been eating a lot of popcorn lately. I, you know, my mom gave me a TV 
So now I have a TV and now I'm, lo- I'm looking at it. And You were always one of these, I don't even own a TV guys? I don't own a TV. I didn't until recently. And now I have one. And, and so when I turn it on, I'm like, hmm, what do I want? Popcorn. It would be a fun game if listeners could try to tell what you had been eating the previous day by which foods you just randomly mentioned four or five times on the on these. Uh, anyway, we hope you will be back with us soon for another entry in The Omnibus. Omnibus.